Welcome to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm your host, Jack Llewellyn. For those of you who have followed us the last few weeks, you know that I am an attorney, an author, and an investigator. And I recently published a, a creative nonfiction book called Someone Had to Die, which delves into the Camarena case and the conspiracies and allegations related to the Camarena case. And in the last couple of weeks, we've talked at length about the facts uh, behind the Camarena case, the abduction, the torture, etc. And we also, last week in particular, looked at The Last Narc, both the uh, series that was on Amazon Prime and the book written by Agent Breas, and uh, looked at some things that might not have been correct in there, uh, and... Uh, I think that that was a an interesting uh, effort to put some academic rigor and some detailed analysis to many of the claims and allegations uh, in the last arc. So today we're going to follow up on that. I'm going to talk about the three witnesses that you see in the last arc, um, and that are largely relied upon by Agent Boreas in his allegations and things. Um, so we're going to look at uh, Jorge Godoy, Rene Lopez Romero, and Ramon Lira, and just look um, at uh, their histories and uh, start making some assessments for ourselves. So... I want to go back and, and say a couple of things about Agent Boreas. And as I've said several times, and I'm going to continue to say, uh, this is not an anti-Hector Boreas podcast. Uh, my book is not an anti-Hector Boreas book. What it is is an effort to try to get the facts correct and apply, as I mentioned just a moment ago, some some academic rigor, some scrutiny to the allegations. So there are a few things to bear in mind. Uh, remember that, notwithstanding how may it, it may sound, Hector was not involved in Operation Landa until 1989. He is a percipient witness to absolutely nothing. Hey, he wasn't at the airport in Guadalajara. He didn't uh, go through Kiki Camarena's desk. He didn't interview witnesses in Guadalajara uh, at or about the time of the abduction. None of that. Furthermore, it's fair to say that he spent most, if not all, of his time in Los Angeles. That's relevant to the extent that he was not in Mexico developing witnesses. Instead, witnesses were developed in Mexico and then presented to Operation Land in the United States. And we're going to talk about that in detail in just a few minutes. What's really clear, if you read Agent Breas' book, or if you watch the four-part uh docu-series, which again is, is well done uh, and their case is well presented. But what's incredibly clear 
is that the entire case, all of the allegations, everything that made it noteworthy or newsworthy or, frankly, interesting, all of that rests on the credibility of Agent Boreas's three witnesses, Jorge Godoy, Renee Lopez Romero, and Ramon Lira. Now, I know for a fact that Agent Boreas has told several people that he believes them, that he thinks they're accurate, that they're telling the truth, that he's done his due diligence. And that may well be. But it seems to me, and the point of this particular episode of our podcast, is that readers really should be able to judge the character and the credibility of these witnesses and make their own assessments on their reliability, their believability, their motivations. And that's what we're going to try to do here. So we're going to walk through um, some of the background and then talk about each of these three witnesses and allow you to start making some evaluations, some judgments of your own. We're going to start with how these witnesses came to the United States. Again, as we said just a minute ago, remember that Agent Breyes was not in Mexico developing the witnesses. Instead, the vast majority of the witnesses who were presented to Operation Landa as possible testimonial witnesses. Um, and, and, and I should note, as an aside, there were more witnesses presented or that were available to be presented to the jury, especially in the second Zuno trial, that were never allowed to testify because of some rulings by the judge. Uh, and the judge's effort to confine the case to the Camarena case and not discuss uh, in any great detail the uh, the deaths of the missionaries or the murders that occurred at La Langosta. But most of those witnesses who were brought up to the United States, presented to Operation Landa, they came from somebody by the name of Antonio Garate Bustamante. Now, Garate had been a Guadalajara police officer, and he became an electronic specialist for many of the traffickers. Uh, he had skills and ability um, to uh, help with their electronic surveillance, their communications, things of that nature. We know that Garate, at one point, assisted both the DEA and the MFB, MFJP, excuse me, for um, or in connection with a number of large cocaine seizures. Uh, Garate had grown up in, in Mexico, um, again, had been a police officer, had a number of contacts perhaps even friends, perhaps even childhood friends, who were, shall we say, on the unsavory side of society. 
And once he started assisting um, the DEA and the MFJP with these seizures, really kind of turning his back on and utilizing his connections to uh, some of these folks, uh, you know, his life became threatened. And as a result, he was relocated by the DEA and given some money. After he became um, kind of a DEA asset, you know, and and again, you know, keep in mind he's in a situation where he's afraid of the people he's betrayed, so he gets taken care of by the DEA, and he feels beholden to the DEA, so he starts recruiting potential witnesses to Operation Landa. One of the ones that he first brings up to the United States who ends up testifying at Zuno 1, as we talked about uh, previously, was one Hector Cervantes Santos. And I'm not going to go into detail on Cervantes at this time, because, again, we talked about him earlier. But the important thing to keep in mind is that Cervantes' testimony was almost completely discredited during the period between the Zuno 1 trial and the Zuno 2 trial. So much so that in Zuno 2, Cervantes is neither mentioned nor does he testify. Think about that. The primary witness, the one man who, especially with respect to Ruben Zuno Arce, the one person who testified against him in Zuno 1, doesn't testify at all in Zuno 2. Instead, we have two new witnesses. We have Godoy and we have Lopez Romero, who come up and save the day for the prosecution because they're able to uh, implicate Ruben Zuno and attempt to implicate Dr. Alvarez Machine after Cervantes is discredited. What's amazing to me, and I'd like you to think about it. So, Garate says, Agent Boreas, DEA, I want y'all to love me. I got the guy for you. I got Hector Cervantes Santos. Here he is. And they put him on the stand. They let him testify. And then they find out afterwards that his testimony is dubious at best. He goes on the record to say that he was coached by Agent Boreas, as well as Assistant U.S. Attorney Medrano, that he was told to sleep with a um, picture of Ruben Zuno under his pillow so he wouldn't forget him, that he was promised a lot more money than he actually received, etc., 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 so Cervantes comes up, he's discredited, and then when the government doesn't have a witness now, doesn't have a witness to really testify against Ruben Zuno, Garate says, oh, I'm your man, I'll save the day, here's Godoy and Lopez. Um, so one could say, in fact, I would say, but again, you know, I really want this to be something where 
the listeners, you're you're thinking about this on your own. But one could say that Godoy and Lopez Romero, um, their their testimony is suspect from the get go, just because of the the situation. I'm going to assert that it's actually more suspect than just that. And it's more suspect when you really look at the timing of Godoy and Lopez becoming witnesses in relation to the Zuno trials and the Zuno appeal. So, let's walk through this very carefully. So, Jorge Godoy was first interviewed by the DEA in Los Angeles on August 30, 1991. His initial meetings with the DEA continued through about October of 1991. For reference, the Zulu trial uh, and the new, or, or the district court's new trial order were both in early 1991. Okay? The Ninth Circuit affirmed the new trial order in an unpublished opinion on March 27, 1992. So, Godoy is first interviewed uh, and has his first significant meetings with the DEA and has continued to be interviewed by the DEA in that intervening period between the new trial order and the appeal uh, and the affirmance of the new trial order by the Ninth Circuit. Now, here's what's important. In the DA6 reports, and there are several of them, that describe Godoy's first set of meetings with the DEA, Godoy does not in any way implicate Zuno in the camera in a conspiracy. Nothing. He does, however, identify Zuno in a picture because he says, well, Zuno is well-known in Jalisco, which we know is true. So he says, yes, I recognize that picture. And he doesn't say, and by the way, this was the guy who was at all these, those meetings I was telling you about. Okay? So... Godoy gets interviewed August, September, October 1991, and then it appears there's a gap until about April 7, 1992, which is two weeks, okay, two weeks after the Ninth Circuit affirms the new trial order. It's in these April 1992 meetings that Godoy, for the first time, first time, says anything, anything at all that implicates Zuno. Now, Boreas, Agent Boreas, either signed off on and or conducted each of these Godoy interviews. All right, so what we have, very clearly, 
Godoy's interview doesn't say anything that implicates Zuno. New trial is affirmed by the Ninth Circuit less than two weeks later, interviewed again, and implicates Zuno. Does that mean Godoy is lying? No. Does that mean a rational person has a basis to question the evidence, the testimony, the statements of Godoy? Perhaps so. Lopez Romero um, didn't start talking to the DA until even later than Godoy. Um, his first interview was in about March of 92, uh, which was after the oral arguments had taken place at the Ninth Circuit and a few weeks before the Court of Appeals actually affirmed the new trial order. But again, what's interesting is if you look at these, and I'm going to tell you, if you look at Lopez Romero's initial DEA-6 reports, they're extensive, they're long, they're many pages long, there's a lot of information in there. In his first interviews with the DEA, he does not implicate Zuno. And there is nothing that says that he implicates Zuno until after the Ninth Circuit ruling. It's at that point, after the new trial is affirmed, that Lopez Romero begins talking about Zuno's alleged involvement in the conspiracy. So again, to recap, what's the point of this? The point is, the timing is interesting. The timing has to raise questions. Now, you can decide for yourself uh, to what extent you think the timing issues militate against uh, believability and credibility, and every person can judge that for themselves. For me, it always has cast a shadow over all of the evidence, but Importantly, the only reason, let me say that better. Importantly, the fact that this timing issue is there, and it's suspect, and it's hinky, and it's weird, is not, by any stretch of the imagination, the only reason to cast uh, a dubious eye or a critical eye to the allegations of Godoy and Lopez Romero. So let's talk for just a couple minutes about Jorge Godoy. Remember, he's one of the two people who, in the last NARC, really present the allegations of a broad conspiracy. He was one of the two people testifying against Zuno in Zuno 2. So apparently, Jorge Godoy joined the Jalisco State Police in about March of 1979. Uh, he was caught drunk on duty in January of 1981, and as a punishment, he was transferred from Guadalajara, which apparently is um, a, a, a good post, a good location. Um, but he was transferred to a place by the name of San Juan de los Lagos. Um, at some point in 1983, thereabouts, um, Apparently, Godoy was facing some uh, disciplinary action, so he resigned from the Jalisco State Police. 
but then later returned to duty. He testified that in 1984, uh, he and several other officers raided a ranch and seized large quantities of cocaine and marijuana, some of which he sold back to the traffickers um, who, from whom they had been stolen. In 1984, while he was still a police officer, he begins providing security for Ernesto Fonseca. Uh, he later quit and went to work for Fonseca full-time. We know from Godoy's own words that he watched Fonseca torture and kill a man, um, tortured him for a period of days in a pretty brutal manner, watched him be shot and killed. Godoy testified that uh, he was president at La Langosta for the Walker and Radelat murders. Um, we've talked earlier about um, some questions with respect to the story of La Langosta, but Godoy, for his part, um, accepts the narrative of the Walker and Radelat murders at La Langosta and says that he was there, watched it, may have participated in some respects. And we have um, numerous affidavits, declarations, and statements from people in his hometown that just, uh, including uh, relatives, in-laws, things of that nature, who essentially considered him a dishonest troublemaker uh, from the time he was growing up until pretty much the present day. So that's, um, oh, that's Jorge Godoy before he gets to the United States. Then he gets to the United States, and on July 23, 1991, uh, Godoy and another man rob a gas station in San Diego. Godoy um, uses an Uzi in the, the robbery and are arrested. Uh, during the whole process here, Godoy at one point confessed to this robbery and three other robberies. Um, but through a whole process that's not really important, uh, an associate basically takes the fall for him, and Godoy's not convicted. Keep in mind that Godoy notes and, and says at the um, Zuno trial that he was fearful of his life if he had stayed in Mexico or if he went back to Mexico. So he has a reason for wanting to be in the United States, wanting protection. We know that uh, he was paid at least $3,000 a month for a period of time while he was assisting the uh, government in the case against Ruben Zuno. And then I think you have to say, I mean, we just have to, to mention this. Anyone who watched The Last Narc, doesn't everybody come away thinking that Jorge Godoy was just batshit crazy? Um, and I guess I'll just leave it at that. But if, if he had any credibility, if you look at all of the stuff we've just said, if he has any credibility, I don't know how much he could possibly have after watching The Last Ark. Now let's talk about Rene Lopez Romero. So he also was with the Jalisco State Police. He was there from about 1979 to 1984. He fully admits in DA6 reports, in testimony, in other places, um, you know, that, that he was not what you would call a, an honest police officer. 
at one point, uh, he's questioned and asked whether he thought some of his actions went against his oath as a police officer. And he said, well, not really, because I didn't take an oath. Um, so clearly, uh, you know, not a model police officer from a uh, law enforcement perspective. He uh, meets Fonseca in September of 1984 and starts providing security and other services to Fonseca. He's involved in capturing and torturing a man and a woman who had bothered uh, Fonseca's wife. He uh, admits in graphic detail to being involved in the torture and murder of the four missionaries, including talking about uh, them disrobing and being tossed into uh, a, a mass grave. But here's really the important part. Rene Lopez Romero admits, admitted on the stand, admitted in DEA 6 reports, admitted in the, uh, the documentary, the docuseries, The Last Narc, admitted that he was involved in the abduction of Agent Camarena himself. It's also worth noting that during the Zuno 2 trial, Rene Lopez Romero was arrested for domestic violence and that he was released and not charged based upon the actions and request of Hector Boreas so that he, he being Rene Lopez Romero, could testify at the Zuno 2 trial. Um, Lopez Romero received immunity. Immunity. Immunity from prosecution relating to his involvement in the Cameron abduction. So he received immunity. He received at least $3,000 a month. And at the time of the Zuno 2 trial, said that he'd received at least $30,000 from the government. So, to testify against Ruben Zuno, the government, Hector Boreas, Manny Medrano, and others, gave immunity and money, money of at least $30,000, to someone who admitted being involved in Cameron's abduction. Judge for yourself how that makes you feel about our justice system. Moreover, Rene Lopez Romero now lives in Las Vegas. He's received his money. He's received his immunity. One can only uh, question the degree to which he's received money for appearing in The Last Narc and in other publications. Again, let that sink in. One of the men who, by his own admission, abducted Agent Camarena is living in Las Vegas and has made money 
been given money by the United States government. Uh, the third witness in the last arc is Ramon Lira. And uh, we'll note that he doesn't testify in the trials. There's very little material on him. And he really says very little that's uh, different from or new or in any way enhances the testimony of Godoy and Lopez Romero um, and their statements in The Last Narc. In the last few months, I've talked to a lot of people about these three witnesses, their veracity, whether they should be believed, um, and really had some good, interesting discussions. And I think there are three basic arguments that are advanced or have been advanced to me as to why you might want to believe them more um, or give them the benefit of the doubt or however you want to say it, but assume that they're, they're telling the truth. One is the argument, and you, you heard this in the last NARC, both from Boreas and Medrano, that they were questioned separately and they said the same things. Keep in mind that they were only questioned separately in the United States. But they'd been in Mexico together. They'd been together with Garate in Mexico before they came to the United States. And the notion that they didn't coordinate uh, their evidence, uh, their recollections, their memories, before they ever got to the United States, should not be discounted. The second thing some people say is, well, they can't be lying now, because if they were lying, they'd lose their immunity. Uh, you know, the, the grant of immunity only goes so far as to say, as long as you're cooperating, as long as you're truthful, and, and I, frankly, I don't understand that argument. Because think about this. Who has any incentive now to take away their immunity? Who has any incentive to say Godoy and Lopez can't be relied upon? Godoy and Lopez Romero lied or otherwise gave false or misleading testimony in the Zuno True trial. Do you really think the government now wants to say, oh, the main witnesses against Ruben, you know, Godoy and Lopez, shoot, we're sorry, we really shouldn't have believed them, but we did. Uh, really sorry, Mr. Zuno, let us make it up to you. Oh, sorry, you're dead. There is no constituency inside or outside of the government with any authority, with any power that has any incentive to say, these guys didn't tell the truth. These guys gave false testimony. They gave misleading testimony. There's nobody. So the fear for them that their immunity is all of a sudden going to go away, I just don't buy. Moreover, there aren't that many witnesses left. Okay? <laughs> you know, the, the kidnapping was in 1985. Even if Rene Lopez Romero is charged now and you take, you know, allow for all of the pre-trial motions, everything to say 
you know, you can't incriminate yourself. Do you think at this point, either one of them is really worried about being prosecuted? I don't buy it. All right, and then the last point is people say, God, they get so many things right. And that's the nuance of this case. And it comes up in so many, many, many areas. And we're going to talk about it a lot next week. What's really hard is when you have your main witnesses be criminals, be people who are involved. And I understand the, the whole argument that the government makes. You know, drug dealers don't run around with choir boys. They run around with other, other drug dealers. Mafia people hang around with other mafia. Those are going to be your witnesses. But what's really hard here is you have people who are involved. Of course, Lopez Romero say, says things that make sense with respect to the Cameron abduction. He was there. Of course, Godoy says things that make sense and ring true with respect to Ernesto Fonseca and some of the things that he did. He was there. There's no doubt. You're, you make a big mistake in my mind if you do one of two things. You accept everything they say is true because they were there, because they have recipient knowledge, because some of the things they say match up. But you also do an injustice to a thoughtful analysis if you say they lied about things, so I'm not going to believe them about anything. The better approach is what we've tried to do here. It's to say, let's look at their allegations. Let's look at every one of them. And let's apply some scrutiny to it. Let's try to figure out what's right and what's wrong. Or better said, let's figure out how to separate the liar's lies from the liar's truth. We know they lie. We know they embellish. We know they make up things, but not everything. And that, I submit to all of you, is the key, the primary point of my book, this podcast, and every analysis. Separating fact from fiction, regardless of out of whose mouths those statements come. All right, uh, that's a good 35-minute discussion on our, our three friends, Jorge Godoy, Rene Lopez Romero, and Ramon Lira. As I've said before, We'd love to get into more detail on uh, or in discussions with people about these folks. Uh, we'd love to have Agent Breas come on and support uh, his reliance on these three guys anytime. Standing invitation. So as we've done in the last couple of weeks, um, we take this in about 35, 40 minute chunks, talk about these things. Now what we're going to do in the next 
couple of weeks. I'm going to give you a couple of previews. So in the next week or so, or the next week, we're going to talk about the CIA in South America and Central America, and we're going to start separating fact from fiction. And next week, we're really going to go through what do we know about a timeline for the CIA's involvement in South and Central America, including SETCO, including working with the Contras, including uh, the ranch at Veracruz, assuming something like that exists, including things around Rancho Buffalo. We're going to put that all together and give a good understanding of of what can we what can we say is true the week after that we're going to go back and look at uh some of the allegations in the Cameron case and see how those all match up we talked about it a little bit last week but we're going to go into far far more depth about this and then three weeks from now i guess it is we are going to discuss jaime kirkendall in depth we're going to have for sure a couple of guests and um, I'm working on a couple of uh, surprises for that discussion that will hopefully make it um, interesting, exciting, uh, and something that you really want to l- listen to. And I'll give you more details as we get closer. So that concludes this episode. Thank you again for listening. And we will talk to you next week when we look at the, the CIA in South and Central America. Have a good week.